0: Morning. Good to see you. If you want to open to Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be there. I feel I don't normally talk about the last service, but I was preaching the last service and I kind of felt the Lord saying, Stop being so complicated. And Hebrews is a complicated book. And so if uh, if, if you feel perhaps like I'm gonna make it an effort to distill the word in a way that's faithful to the Holy Spirit, I just want you to know if, if you want to hear the more complicated version, uh, you can find it somewhere else. I, uh, it's an, it's an effort of obedience, I think, uh, to the Lord. Um, because we're on our way to Christi- uh, Christmas, and I have in my back in my mind, what if someone's coming in here for the first time, or is they're curious about Jesus? I don't want them to get bogged down in a briar patch of sort of translational complexity, these sorts of things. And, um, so I'm really mindful of that. I'm, if you're here today and you feel like you're new to the faith or curious, I, I just want you to know I'm mindful of you. <clears throat> I'm mindful of the table we're coming to this morning, it's the Lord's table, it's for those in Christ, so... If, you don't consider yourself that. When the time comes, you can just allow the elements to pass. But it's a, I want us to steer towards approaching the Lord on our own as a church, uh, both on our own and as a church. And um, what a great, what a great place to be. Uh, Hebrews is about who is Jesus. That's what we've we've been walking through. You know, week one, Jesus is God. Week two, He's man you are so sorely underestimating the lord if if you think jesus is something less than that and you should really wonder why are you doing that and today we're going to begin to sort of unthread some of the practical reasons of that and i might offer this as a as a a, a place to start to feel maybe maybe the writer is is going to try to say this this morning. Have you ever felt for yourself like, I know I'm saved, but I don't feel that saved. Or, I really would appreciate it if God would fix that. Like, Lord, if you're there, maybe you haven't prayed exactly that way, but you might have felt that way at times. Sometimes the encouragement of the word it can sound a little bit like an encouragement of a mother when you're feeling bad about life. You know how after a breakup, a mom might say, Oh, there's someone else out there for you. And as a young, having gone through that, some way it's just not that helpful when it comes from mom. You know, like, I know, mom. I just, but you know, or when they say, You're such a handsome boy. You're like, It doesn't count. You know? Your mom. There's some way in our own life that the most profound and wonderful parts of your salvation are being said over you and they just don't seem to count. Because of the thing that's going on in your life right now. And I think the Lord has something to say to you this morning. I certainly want you to confront the Lord over that before you take the elements. So, We're going to have, uh, as as the word pivots to be a little bit more practical this morning, we're going to start with a warning about our Christian life. And then I think maybe a tip of the hand as to perhaps why there might have been a need for the warning in the first place. Uh, Hebrews 2, if you're there. Here's the, uh, the warning. I'm going to read the first four verses. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So the warning begins with a therefore, which sort of means the warning is based upon the things that have come out before it, which is this, the first chapter of Hebrews is a strong statement that Jesus is divine. There's no other category for him other than God. Begins to say Jesus is the son of God, he's the heir to all things, all things were created through him. He's the radiance of the glory of God, he's the exact imprint of his nature, it's by the power of his word that all things are sustained. After having made purification for our sins, he's returned back to his position of glory. He's God. It's just... And then the rest of that chapter was kind of trying to argue on what, as best we might guess is doubts that were creeping into the church that he was something less than that. And here comes the warning, therefore, and it's kind of a strong warning, it's the first of several warnings, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, therefore we must pay much closer attention, much closer attention. The Greek there is kind of, it actually, much closer attention actually has its root in a, a nautical sort of idea, like remain anchored in, which is worth saying because of the the back of the phrase is, lest we drift away. You hear that? So someone with an ear hearing the Greek might actually be very comfortable with what they're hearing. Like, Use great care to remain anchored exactly where you're supposed to be lest you drift. Drifting is different than departing from. Departing feels a little bit more active. Drifting feels passive. If you've been at the beach, especially as a parent, kids are playing in the water, They drift. They drift down the beach without paying much attention. The warning here is not don't walk away. It's be careful that you don't drift away. So something that might passively happen, we're actually, it's just worth appreciating. You're being placed in responsibility over something that might just passively happen. You're actively guilty if you passively drift. That's, that's the heart of it here. There is some thought, by the way, to while drifting is not the same as departing or walking away or abandoning, drifting often is the first thing that happens. It's the first step that sometimes in life turns into walking away, departing, and abandoning. And Someone doesn't walk out on their family overnight when you finally ask them, well, it's been a while, we just drifted apart. That's the preamble to the act of abandonment. I think in, in some scriptural ways, you'd be careful lest you drift. Yet if you drift away so far from the shore of the Lord, you might look out and find other shores are closer. Like maybe there's more hope if I go there than if I go all the way back to him. So it's this idea of be careful lest you drift. Pay attention. Just to stay nautical for a little longer, drifting seems to imply current. Life is not lived on fixed ground, so to speak, in this, at least in this image. It's lived in the water. I don't know, for some maybe they just feel the current around their, their knees, but for some it sits way up by their shoulders, depending on where you're coming from and how far away from him you have been. The current might feel stronger, but it's... Drifting implies current. And an interesting current is always there. That's sort of lurking in the meaning here. It's constant. Then things that are constant often fade from notice. You ever notice that? The things that around us just keep happening, even if they're uh, really, really negative, you grow numb to it. We have a way of growing numb to things that just seem pervasive. That's, that's in the warning here. Be, be, I mean, it's kind of, It's hard to say it more strongly. We must pay much closer attention. That's a strong way of saying it, lest you drift. When you're in the current, you can't hit pause. <clears throat> You can't just hit pause on your faith and come back to it later and expect to return to the same faith. Sure, some here. If I was if this was an amening church, there'd be some amens there. Yeah. I think many of us have had times and seasons in our life where we kind of hit pause on the Lord. The recomeback is hard. There's a lot of regret. You can't set your walk with Christ aside with no side effect. Did you ever notice how good habits <clears throat> will fade in a moment? And bad habits <clears throat> entrench themselves overnight? That's, that's evidence of the current. That's, there it is. That's your evidence of the current, the unseen current. is the trend of the human life. The things that are valuable are delicate. The things that are dangerous are everywhere. I don't leave, I leave, you know, I go occasionally away with the military, but not like I used to. Used to go for long periods of time. And in those early years, what I found about myself, and it it took a little while to figure, you know, when when you remove things that are, What are the things that sort of hold our faith together? Things like stable environments of faith, communities of faith. Well, when you strip a person away from those things, it's very disorienting. So my my first several deployments, uh, I would come home less of a man than I left, if that makes sense. There was a, the things that kept me safe were taken from me. And it might have resulted in hitting the pause button, but the current didn't stop. And I came home farther down the street and had to work my way back with disappointment, right? I'm letting the Lord down. I'm letting my wife down. I'm letting my children down. I'm letting my colleagues down. I'm letting my neighbors down. I'm letting even my enemies down. Now, when I go away, I try to pay much closer attention lest I drift. I have what might never fade. I have a COVID lamentation in my heart for what happened in the church. For, you know, the church was scattered back into the walls of their homes and then our hyper-individualist culture sort of thought, well, we can do this on our own. All we really need is something on video. After all, that's what church is, right? Just a couple songs on video. You can get anybody to say anything on video. Uh, I mean, if it's video, then go watch Tim Keller. He's better. Uh, if that's church, right? But that, that's sort of a way too easy, back too hard. It's current. I mean, I, I still, my heart grieves. Probably every week I think of a family that either isn't here or isn't here like they once were or has redefined, I guess it's good enough to watch it from home. I mean, I I guess I'm saying this, and maybe they're hearing this. I just have a lamentation for the drift. Be careful lest you drift. It's a real thing, right? It's real. And and this probably could be broadly thought about as a topic. It's being narrowly spoken about here with their view, I think their temptation to reclassify the ministry of Jesus Christ something like that because he's going to keep hammering on who Jesus is but the tendency to drift just be you can drift far enough away that some alternative shore will feel closer to you it's possible and you should know by the way the book of hebrews does not handle if you're accustomed to thinking of the christian faith as well i said the prayer or i got baptized or i it, the, the book of Hebrews, in my opinion, the New Testament does not treat the faith as though you cross a threshold and that's the big thing. The book of, You are not going to like this book as we walk through it. It has a high concern for drifting away. Seems like a real thing. So after that warning, there's the warning. Okay, so we're done with the warning. We'll move on. We're going to into we're back into a familiar comparison, a comparison that he's used so far, uh, kind of just like the book started in former days and in various ways the Lord spoke through the mouth of the prophets. He'd use it to describe the Old Testament, and he's going to say, and in this present age, he's speaking through his Son. Right. That this comparison, the same comparison is going to exist. We're going to hear the former ways described as. The revelation of God as handed down through the ministry of angels, which we talked a little bit about last week. There's likely a fascination and maybe an overplay on what angels did. And, you know, I'm certain that there's some correctness. I don't understand all about it, except he's kind of touching on it again. This notion that a fair amount of the law was transmitted or mediated by the heavenly hosts through Moses. So he's going to refer to that former way as handed down through angels. He's going to refer to this present age as our great salvation. So let me read 2 and 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see the comparison? It's a description of the law, the law of Moses. You might say Old Testament Judaism, something like that. He says, if it was binding and effective, if the violation of that law bore just penalty, then he compares it how much more careful, it's the back end of the warning, how much more careful should we be to neglect what he says, such a great salvation. It's the mechanics of this is, if the lesser is true, how much more the greater? That's the logical mechanic here. The first, it's not that the first was bad or broken, quite the contrary. The first was suitable and correct. The former, the law of Moses, his The law of Moses offered truth. The disregard of that truth bore just penalty. He's saying, How much more woeful is it for us to ignore the law of grace? If God has visited us with grace and we neglect that, what then is going to be your defense before the Lord? So you couldn't live justly and you got penalized. Now you can't even live under grace? Use, ooh, use great care that we don't squander the grace that the Lord's given us here. I just want to uh, maybe take a side step for a second just to maybe hear and feel even the way the writer views the ministry of Christ is so much better. Just imagine how, I'm going to say a statement, I want you to imagine how you feel when you hear it, okay? The st- The statement is, coming right out of the word, if the former promise, it proved reliable, some translations will say legally binding, okay, reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how does that make you feel? You're living in an environment, a reliable environment, in which every transgression or disobedience receives its just penalty, okay? How does that make you feel? versus, this is the language he uses, versus such a great salvation. Such a great salvation. Man, I feel like I know this guy. Those aren't even in the same classroom, right? It's moral math and it's rescue. He says, if the moral math proved true, why in the world, like, don't ignore the rescue of God. Somehow, they're understanding the tam- They're tampering. They're entertained the notion of tampering with who exactly is Jesus, and the ri- and the writer is warning them, going, "Listen, you touch that, and you're gonna f- <laughs> you're you're tampering with your rescuer. Like our rescue depends on. Who he is. It's also uh, just as I wanted to say, like the Lord Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's why he came. It's good news. It's pure, unadulterated good news that he came to save sinners. There is an inescapable back end of the logic, though, which is to ignore that is to your peril. It's. I really think it's inappropriate to preach the gospel of Christ with a, you know as a whole with a, with a heavy hand or to sort of smite somebody with the gospel. it's not Jesus Christ came to save. It is a great salvation. However, there is a consequence to ignoring a God who died for you. He's saying, use great care. If the penalty for disobedience in the lesser law was just, how much for the greater? Okay. There's the warning, and then it seems I'm going to read three and four again. But it's, it seems it's going to try to shore up them, uh, shore them back up again, saying, "Hey, remember what you know. Remember what you know. Somehow, and this is so true in our Christian life. Somehow, there's God can be very real in your Christian life, and a few months or years can pass, and you can forget the things He's done." that really you should be returning to. This, the table reminds us, remember the right things the right way. So he, he lists them out for them. He gives them four and three. He says, it was declared at first by the Lord. So he says, hey, this good news, this great salvation, God himself spoke it, which matters to me. Our great hope and salvation in Jesus Christ is not some carefully derived intuition of some biblical scholar. No, Jesus came and said it. Our Lord said, this is my body. He said it. You don't have to be, you don't have to do any fancy math there. Jesus died for you. right? So he says, it was first declared by the Lord, and then it was tested by, attested to us by those who heard so it was declared by the Lord, and this seems to be of regular value in the early church. It was witnessed by people that we know. He's remember that. Jesus said it. Imagine if we were in AD 65, and whoever the speaker was up here was saying, do you remember? Jesus said it, and Fred, you guys know Fred? He saw it. You know, and just imagine Fred's not a, it's a good friend. Imagine a good friend. Trustworthy, wise, reliable friend. You're like, wow, man. I trust Fred as, as long as the day is. Like, If he saw it. He's, he's putting that back in front of them. Our Lord taught it. We know brothers and sisters who saw him. That's the second one. And then third is, and then you experience signs, wonders, and miracles. And the fourth one, and oh, by the way, you've also received the Holy Spirit. You know, in some ways, right? Especially since we have scripture, we have church history, and we have the long evidence of God at work in the world. We have maybe a slightly different list, but not an entirely different list. But I might just say a list that's every bit as forgettable if you're not careful. For this reason, use great, much great care lest you drift. I am certain in this room, some of you would say, undeniably, you have experienced God in your life. At times, we are like, that was the Lord. And yet, I imagine maybe the exact same list will admit that it is forgettable. Don't forget it. He's had buttresses them up with, remember. It's actually an elegant list. He starts with what he did, God. Then he talks about what they said, those who witnessed. And then he talks about what has been experienced among us, what what we've experienced, the miracles and signs and wonders. And he ends kind of with what you've experienced with the Holy Spirit. Kind of starts way over there with him and ends up way over here with you. All these different ways to remember them. All right, there's the warning. As we move into five through nine, we're gonna maybe get to that question I started with, which is something like, what if it doesn't, what if I don't feel like I'm as saved as I am? Sometimes What's been done for us, it doesn't feel quite as true as maybe it is. Uh, And the reading is a a little little bit complicated here. So the words are going to kind of twist around a bit. He's going to quote Psalm 8. Okay, so the fancy type in the middle is the eighth Psalm. And I don't know whether he's, I don't really think he's arguing the point from Psalm 8. I think more he's just allowing Psalm 8 to sort of illustrate the point. So the argument stands without the psalm. Um, But uh, nonetheless, I think he's saying, interestingly, the psalm mirrors what Jesus did. So let me read five through nine, and uh, we'll kind of focus on a phrase in eight as uh, we, we point towards the Lord's table. He says this, for it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. He's saying, hey, God... Is push angels out of your head, okay, to a church that's caught up in this. The world and everything in it is not the domain of angels. It's not, they don't control it. You don't belong to them. Okay, so hey, it wasn't to angels that he subjected the world to come. Uh, of which we are speaking Here, Here's verse six. It has been testified somewhere, and here's the eighth Psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? or the Son of Man, which is a reference to Messiah, the Christ, or the Son of Man that you care for Him. You made Him a little uh, while lower than the angels. You've crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. So here's the play of the psalm. He's saying, the Son of Man, for a little while, you might just say, came to the earth, and existed as man, as something lower than the angels. But now, he's crowned with glory, and everything is under his feet. That's kind of how he's using the psalm. I'll pick up an eight. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here's the thought is Jesus, Jesus has now put everything in subjection to him right? Everything is under his feet. Everything is under his control. Everything in your life is under the control of God. And then you have this phrase, which to me, I'm so grateful it's in the Bible because I'm like, I feel this. It's an eight. We do not see everything at present. We do not see everything in subjection. Does that feel like you? Like, I have real problems that at present, I don't feel like just don't sometimes feel like, I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm just saying I don't feel like God's necessarily in control of it. The writer is acknowledging your feeling. And the writer returns to say, but this here's the deal. We did see Jesus for a little while become small like us, and now he's great like God again. So, hope. That's the message, right? Hope. He's in control of all things. At present, it might not feel like he's in control of everything. But here's what we do know He came down, and all the things that were subject to him, he subjected himself to. Think about that. Jesus didn't just come down, Jesus came down and got underneath the things that are over you. And he picked them up, and he carried them to the cross and he's seated at the right hand, right? He died, was buried, was rose again, and is seated at the right hand of God. He is over all these things now. I just want to sit for a second on this thought of, at present, it doesn't feel like it. I can only imagine for this Jewish church, this community of Jews who've turned to Christ, I can only imagine that they might perhaps have had a different, slightly different view of our great salvation. You know, all of us, I think, when we enter, enter into faith in Christ and take on the salvation, there's the grand cosmic salvation in mind, but I think also for many of us, there's a, oh, by the way, he might also solve that. While he's at it, if he secured my life in Christ for eternity, then certainly he can solve my addiction or my loneliness or my job problem or my health problem, right? If he's Lord of everything, he's Lord of these things also. I think that's a common perception because it's true. God is, this is what he's saying. The Lord is enthroned on high and everything is beneath him, even if at present it does not feel like for you, like everything, you've, everything has been subjected. Even though this world continues to groan and be bound up, the Lord has solved it. The end is coming. The fight, the battle is won, and it's just playing out. It's kind of like on a football field where they start taking the knee, the clock just has to run out. But the game is won. <laughs> Have you ever found the great salvation that we have coming sometimes feels less real than the small salvation you can't seem to get like in your day or in your week? Like, oh, I'm glad we're not given the choice of exchanging the two because I think a lot of us might've sold our birthright away for a bowl of soup. He holds on to your inheritance. He's the only one with a grip strong enough to hold on to your inheritance so you don't sell it out for something less. The writer acknowledges at present you don't see it. But he then he goes in verse 9 and says, But we do know this Jesus came down, he suffered death, he rose again, he's seated in glory. It says, Having, here's the phrase Let's think about this for communion having tasted your death. He tasted your death. So use great care to remain anchored lest you drift. There's the warning. Use great care. This short this life of yours, whether it's you get eighty-six years or fifty-four years or however many years, it's light momentary in comparison to what's coming. He's running the clock out. And in this meantime, you know what worship is? Worship is living with great care that we do not drift from our Lord who has tasted our death for us. That's the table this morning. That's what we've, that's the Lord we've come to worship The one who says, hey, in this life there's gonna be hardship and trouble. I get it, take heart, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Be patient, don't drift. If you bow your heads, I'm gonna just say words over us, words that sometimes might have the power of making you feel like you have a lesser salvation. Like if there's a sickness in this room or a cancer, somebody with cancer, and that's in front of you, you just need to hear this morning, that does not threaten your great salvation. It doesn't threaten it. It doesn't annul it. And it's so much less than what's coming. If you suffer from stress or anxiety or headaches, these things are small compared to what's coming. God is greater than seizures. God is greater than shame. God has tasted your addiction and triumphed over it. God is greater than the fear you suffer from. Your salvation is greater than your insecurities, your lack of purpose. God, our Lord fills that room for you. For he's greater than death. Lord, we ask that you give us great care, that we would not neglect our great salvation. Even though at times in this present life, there's difficulties There's things that might cause us to drift. Lord, I pray you help make it, keep us anchored in what your son has done for us. And this morning, Lord, we we come to the table to remember, to do precisely that, to remember the one thing that matters, that you came, offered yourself up for our lives and are now seated at the right hand of the Father. We pray, Lord, that that would be robust in our lives and our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.